From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. If you've been listening to this show for years, you probably know the name Sean Sherman. I've had the pleasure of speaking with the award-winning chef, activist, author, and educator on a few occasions, but not since his restaurant, Awamni, garnered a James Beard Award, or since he was named the 2023 recipient of the Julia Child Award, or since he made the list of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. His latest endeavor is the newly launched Indigenous Food Lab in Minneapolis. There's a lot to discuss, and I'm so glad to welcome Sean back to Good Food. Well, you've been a very busy guy. It's true. It's true. Lots of travel, lots of projects, lots of things manifesting. So let's talk about this mission um, of yours with founding the North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems Natives and opening the Indigenous Food Lab. Tell us about it. Absolutely. So the nonprofit world was always something I realized early on was going to be really necessary to be able to do this work because trying to do for-profit businesses, it's it's such a hustle. You know, you're just constantly working so hard for so little money. And I just really wanted to get this out there larger because the need was so big. Like just from what I grew up with on Pine Ridge, having very little access to um, much nutrition or food in general, and just seeing that still being so commonplace in so many tribal communities that we wanted to see we saw an opportunity to try to make a difference so the nonprofit natives or north american traditional indigenous food systems was designed to try to be a support center to help develop more food operations and uh, to really help see more restaurateurs, more food truck operators, caterers, food producers, whatever it may be. Because the two goals is creating access to indigenous foods and creating access to indigenous education. So we just opened up Indigenous Food Lab, which is in Minneapolis, in South Minneapolis, where we have a native market space where we can sell native food products from native food producers. We have a native classroom where we're going to be teaching about all facets of indigenous-focused education, which could be culinary, food preservation, language, medicinal, crafting, basically anything that falls under Indigenous education, and just being a support center regionally to help see more operations come about, and working with not only tribal communities, but Indigenous entrepreneurs also. And then our goal was always to replicate. So we've already planted seeds to start opening up extensions of Indigenous Food Lab in places like Anchorage, Alaska, Bozeman, Montana, Rapid City, South Dakota. Um, We're even exploring Oahu, and we have other places kind of down the road that are interested in this work. The Indigenous Food Lab was in the works for several years. Um, Funding a venture of, of this nature is always difficult. But then, of course, the pandemic struck. And you're also based in Minneapolis, which was the heart of the George Floyd murder and aftermath. How difficult was it to get the space up and running? It was um, quite an interesting time period because I moved, we found the location that we're at at the beginning of January 2020. We moved in and we were dealing with all of uh, just getting legalities out of the way, leases out of the way. And then uh, March comes around and just complete, the whole world changes. All food service operations just cease, you know, on a global scale. So we'd watched all of our catering uh, just disappear up in smoke. 
And so we sat tight for a moment, um, for a few weeks. And then at the end of May is when George Floyd is murdered, just eight blocks south of our location. And the street that we're on is where the social uprising really happened for a few days in a row. And all the buildings around us just got completely burned to the ground. So we moved in um, at that time period, right in the middle of beginning of the pandemic, even where there was very little knowledge as to what was going on and started doing an immense amount of food relief. So we were doing four. 400 meals a day serving healthy indigenous foods to our local community, which turned into 10,000 meals a week sending indigenous foods to nine out of 11 tribes across Minnesota. Um, and that's kind of how we were born as the Indigenous Food Lab. You know, it's interesting to me because there have been, I've heard so many different stories about how the pandemic, while at first creating enormous impediment, also created just some amazing opportunities. So, it sounds like the fact that you were able to um, send so much indigenous product to communities in need during that period of time was really kind of a blessing in a way. Absolutely. And it also gave us an opportunity to utilize the support dollars that we had to do that work to purchase from indigenous producers and local producers around us who also saw their businesses greatly affected by the pandemic. And we pushed tens of thousands of dollars into supporting those businesses through that very hard time. So let's talk about um, who some of the retailers are that you're talking about, the ones that are representative at the IFL. How did you go about finding and curating the products and and give us sort of just a little smattering of who some are? Yeah, I mean, we've been able to just reach out. We had a lot of friends um, out there um, already doing some of this work, and there's already been a few um, Native markets online that have happened. And we just, you know, so we've been very close to groups. Um, there's uh, Sakari Farms uh, uh, out of the Pacific Northwest, and there's uh, Bow and Arrow Corn Company around Durango, Colorado, which is part of the Ute Mountain Tribe. Um, we're buying Pima corn from Romona Farms south of Arizona. Uh, we're purchasing corn from Potawatomi Nation out in Michigan. Uh, we're using a local farm here in Minneapolis called Dream Wild Health and buying a lot of uh, fresh farm produce from this native farm here close by. And we just we buy a lot of bison from Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe out of South Dakota. And there's just all these other products. So we have a market manager who's been working with us um, since for, for quite a while and um, helping to curate this list that we're going to continuously grow and just bring in more and more amazing indigenous food products from indigenous producers. Let's talk about um, education for a minute. Um, you've said that children today can name more Kardashians than they can trees. <laughs> um, Talk about the educational component of the work you're doing. Well, I think it's really important because I feel like there's a war with education happening in our country right now. And, you know, some states are writing into legislation to completely remove black and indigenous histories from our from you know, from what's available to students. And I think it's so dangerous. Like we should be really learning what happened to indigenous peoples. You know, the extreme violence led by the United States government against black and indigenous peoples across the 1800s, the segregation and oppression that happens across the 1900s and even leads into today. There's so much to learn about. And then when we look at education from an indigenous perspective, first off, we just identify that. So indigenous education was just tens of thousands of generations 
of knowledge being handed down to us, again, to give us the ability to live sustainably with the world around us. And that's part of the work that we're trying to do is to create a place that stewards Indigenous knowledge, Indigenous perspectives in the academia world. And, uh, you know, so that's why we created a studio to just create countless videos eventually on cooking techniques, on interviews, on language, on crafting, on wild foods and medicinals, on basically anything that falls under Indigenous-focused and perspective of education. Could you name-check a couple ingredients that Indigenous communities have really embraced and been so grateful to have back again or to see for many for the first time? I would say that, you know, because of the rule sets of living in a colonial world, uh, in a very capitalistic world, there's a lot of rules that um, inhibit us as Indigenous peoples from having access to our own Indigenous foods. You know, so it could be like Alaskan Natives um, trying to have access to whale or seal um, and how that's possible. Or here in Minnesota, like having access to like animals like beaver, for instance, you know, fall outside the things that the government allows us to utilize. And I think it's really important for us to have these conversations to talk about the importance of culturally relevant foods, whether it's protein, agricultural, or wild foods, um, and just, you know, having the access, because so much of it is land access, so much of it we can't go out and harvest wild foods like our ancestors used to, or, you know, grow the crops because a lot of our seeds have disappeared over the last couple centuries. So here it's a constant battle with wild rice and keeping our waterways clean, which we've seen people like Winona LaDuke fight so hard for her whole life, just trying to identify the importance of some of these pieces that really make up a big part of our particular cultures, you know, or bison in the Dakotas, or even things that uh, that become introduced, like churro sheep down in Navajo Nation, and the importance of that animal to a lot of the tribes down there. Um, so there's a lot to talk about all over the place, really, when it comes down to it. Last month was unbelievably eventful. You were named the recipient of the 2023 Julia Child Award and the gala will take place in Minneapolis this fall. Tell us a little bit about the recognition and what it means. You know, it's just massive honors um, to have the Julia Child Award, which they'll be presenting on October this year in Minneapolis, like you mentioned. But, you know, all these things just help us get the visibility out there because it's really hard for you know, just coming from uh, where I came from, from Pine Ridge, to even dream about owning a restaurant someday and uh, to have the ability to hold some of these platforms, to be able to do something with a lot of intention and to have people share this intention through a lot of these writings. Um, so to me, it's just a huge honor um, and it just helps us grow and it hope hopefully helps open up doors for other people coming in um, around us and behind us. Well, Sean, I just have to say that it has just been such a humbling experience to get to watch you grow and develop over the years. And I'm just thrilled for you that you're getting all this recognition. Thank you for coming to the show. Well, thank you so much. And hopefully see you in your area sometime soon. That would be great. That's Chef Sean Sherman, a member of the Oglala Lakota Sioux Tribe. He's been honored with the James Beard Award, and this week he's being honored as the recipient of the 2023 Julia Child Award. We've been discussing his vision to reimagine food systems among Indigenous communities. Coming up. 
no doubt you've heard about Ozempic. And if you're like me, you have a lot of questions. We answer a few of them next. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. Welcome back to Good Food. In my most recent in-person physical exam, my doctor for the first time asked me if I was interested in being referred to the bariatric department to be evaluated for Ozempic. Meanwhile, as I worked on notes for this interview, I was eating the leftovers of a burrito I had for dinner. This is the life of a fat person with food noise in their head now. As you may have heard, Ozempic is a long-time diabetes drug that's been remarketed as a wonder solution for weight loss. Its quick acceptance by both doctors and consumers alike has been startling with ripple effects far and wide. When investors learned that Walmart customers on Ozempic were buying less snack food, shares in major food companies shed considerably. The Wall Street panic makes sense when you consider research that shows that Ozempic reduces daily food consumption by 20 to 30%. For those of us who are fat, this is a new and deeply personal option to navigate. I've been wanting to have a conversation about this class of drugs for a while, so we invited Virginia Soul Smith, creator of Burnt Toast, a newsletter and a podcast about how we navigate diet culture and fat phobia. Hi, Virginia. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to have you back to talk about the medical elephant in the room. <laughs> Absolutely. Could you explain what Ozempic and the other drugs in the same class are and how they work? Sure. So these are all diabetes medications um, that were initially approved by the FDA to manage blood sugar levels for folks with diabetes. And along the way, the drug manufacturers were quick to notice that they often also resulted in significant weight loss for people on these medications. And because the drug manufacturers know where the money is, they very quickly pivoted to getting them approved for weight loss and marketing them as weight loss medications. And so that's really when we've seen this big shift in terms of the whole conversation around weight loss drugs. I mean, I think those of us who have been around for a while are used to every few years, there's a kind of flash in the pan moment about some drug claiming to be the silver bullet on weight loss. And then if you follow the story of a lot of these drugs about 18 months, two years, five years later, we're hearing about the side effects. We're hearing about how they don't really work. In many cases, the FDA has actually withdrawn their approval of these drugs. So weight loss drugs have a really problematic history. But I think Ozempic and Wigovi and the like are getting our attention now because people are claiming that they actually change the way they experience hunger and the way they think about food. And that is something that is very appealing in a culture that tells us all the time that we shouldn't be hungry and we shouldn't think about food. Yeah, it's so complicated. You've been reporting on health, nutrition, beauty culture, and anti-fat bias for years. Do you think Ozempic 
is a true wonder drug to conquer obesity, or do you think it's another dangerous reframing of diet culture? I would say pretty firmly the latter, and there's a couple of reasons why. It's not that it's not causing weight loss for lots of folks. Um, it, you know, we are seeing that. We are also seeing, however, that in some cases, even if you stay on the drug, you don't sustain the weight loss. And for sure, if you come off the drug, you do not sustain the weight loss. And that's really concerning because these are extremely expensive drugs, right? We're looking at $900 a month in a lot of cases and upwards of that. So we're talking about a, quote, solution that's only going to be available to the elite. And that's what we're seeing in terms of how it's getting embraced by Hollywood, by, you know, celebrities who are not in an elevated BMI, who are using it just to be as thin as possible. I mean, that's how where we're seeing it become more marketed towards recreational weight loss rather than a medical solution. But even beyond all of that, what I find really concerning about Ozempic is I think because people are pinning so many hopes on it, it's creating this conversation where people are saying, well, if there is finally a silver bullet, if there is this way to do it, then maybe it's okay that I don't want to be fat. And maybe it's okay that I don't like fat people. And so I think not only is it probably not the solution people are hoping for, but it's also exacerbating anti-fatness in really concerning ways. You wrote in an essay about the food noise aspect of Ozempic for your um, site, Burnt Toast. And the comment section I found unbelievably interesting. Yes. There was one person in particular who said, for her, the quieting of food noise and her ability to, quote, she said, get in touch with her hunger better made her think that if she had a choice of being the weight she was when she started on the drug, but still be able to have this quieting of food noise, she would 100% choose the additional weight over weight reduction just because of that one factor. The entire discussion that resulted when I brought up the food noise question with my audience made it clear to me that I think a lot of us are defining food noise really differently. I think it means something different to all of us. You know, when I hear food noise, I'm thinking about folks who have, because they've been told their whole lives their body is a problem and that restriction is necessary, that they need to be trying to lose weight. We know that when you're on a diet and you're trying to restrict your intake, of course, all you can think about is the burrito or the cookies or whatever. And that that is a feature, not a bug. That's how our bodies are designed to respond to restriction because that's how we survive famines and times of food scarcity. And your body cannot tell the difference between a famine and the Atkins diet. You know, I mean, it's all the same. It's just restriction. And so it makes sense that food noise gets louder when we're dieting because we are starving ourselves. And it also makes sense that folks with a really complicated history of frequent dieting and frequent on and off the yo-yo diet carousel are living with a lot of food noise all the time, even when they are eating more. Because again, like the way they're they've been sort of programmed to engage with food is always in this restrictive mindset. Even when you're letting yourself eat, you don't feel like you have permission to eat. And so the idea that Ozempic turns that noise off is I think both incredibly seductive and I understand why 
that person, you know, was like, this would be worth doing even if my weight didn't change because this noise is so loud. But what we have to understand is that that kind of food noise is culturally created. If we lived in a culture where eating felt safer to more people, we wouldn't have that noise in our brains. So I don't think that Ozempic is the solution because Ozempic is being marketed as a pro-weight loss drug that is saying we need to make people smaller. It's not trying to dismantle the culture. It's sort of making us more numb to the culture in a way. Yeah, it's interesting. Of course, there are other kinds of food noise that are more obsessive compulsive or anxiety-based. Yeah, and I mean, I think there's absolutely a place for medication that helps folks in acute stages of obsessive compulsive disorder, of anxiety, of eating disorders, where maybe there is a place for a medication that turns down the volume on your, I mean, just like, of course, I encourage people with depression and anxiety to get medical support for those conditions. A medication that would turn down the noise on your rumination so that it was easier to feed yourself without that shame spiral is really appealing. I just don't see how Ozempic can be that medication with the way it's currently marketed and with the larger conversation, the larger cultural discourse we now have about it. You mentioned how expensive these drugs are. Um, Do you think there will be even more stigma on overweight people who can't afford these drugs? Oh yeah, I think we're setting ourselves up to create this sort of new elite class system of who can afford thinness and who can't. And that's not going to do anything to dismantle anti-fat bias. That's only going to entrench it further and further entangle it with other forms of bias like classism and racism and so on. Yeah, it's so ironic because many people such as yourself have worked for so many years to create a greater societal acceptance of body size and diversity. Yeah, I think we're in a messy middle place. I think we've made some real progress. A lot of these conversations are mainstream in a way they weren't even five years ago, certainly not 10 years ago or 15 years ago. And I think that's made the diet industry pretty nervous because at some point, you know, if enough of us decide to go another way with this, they're all out of a job. So I think it makes sense. We're seeing a doubling down on this. I think we're also at a pretty critical juncture in terms of the debate within health and science fields about how to understand weight as a contributing factor to health. And there's a lot of people who have a lot of money tied up in continuing to persuade us that our weight is our most important measure of health, despite the fact that that's not what the research shows. But it's going to take a lot of work to continue to dismantle that. And it's difficult when it's so many organizations, you know, when it's your doctor, when it's the American Medical Association, when it's major institutions that hold a lot of power who are still tied to this older model. It's always so interesting to talk with you. Thank you so much, Virginia. Oh, thank you. This was great. That was Virginia Soul Smith, creator of the newsletter and podcast, Burnt Toast, and author of Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. 
70% of Africa's population is under the age of 30. The future of Africa is full of innovation and culture. Pierre Tom has been living in the United States, making it his mission to promote the cuisine of his native Senegal, along with championing the rest of West Africa. His latest endeavor is to bring the flavors of his motherland to more kitchens in his new home, where Africa meets America. It's so great to have you back on Good Food, Pierre. I always look forward to our conversations. Me too. Thanks for having me back. How long have you been living in the United States? Oh, a little over three decades now. I arrived in late 1989 as a young student, and I'm still here. (laughs) What brought you here, and and how did your plans to go back home get sidelined? Oh boy, I was just supposed to come here to finish my degrees in physics and chemistry. I had a student visa. And uh, this was supposed to be a three, four years kind of a trip. And 30 plus years later, I'm not even with that degree, but I'm in the kitchen <laughs> and a different type of chemistry. So um, I was on my way to Ohio and I got stuck in New York. That's the short story. And uh, <laughs> end up in the kitchen from the bottom up. And as I was climbing up, also realizing that there was an opportunity to dig into the food of my origins as a source of inspiration. You know, as I became a line cook, from line cook to sous chef to sous chef to, you know, all of those things were being in restaurants from American to Italian cuisine to French bistro, different restaurants in New York City, which was, you know, the food capital of the world. Very exciting to be a young cook at the time here, but my food was missing and I knew that there was a place for it. Where are you living now? Now I'm in California, in the Bay Area, in Auckland, actually. So interesting. Such a journey. Could you describe the essence of the word teranga and how you incorporate that spirit into your food? Teranga is uh, the highest value in Senegalese culture, actually. It's a word that translates as hospitality. It's a, it's a way of life in Senegal. It's uh, everyone is expected to have teranga is to really be um, hospitable to to anyone that comes to your through your doors, and uh, mostly for the foreigners, the stranger, the person who seems to be lost. You teranga is to make him feel comfortable, make him feel at home, and oftentimes it translates by offering food, offering the best of what you have. The last time we spoke, we discussed fonio, a gluten-free super grain that's used in many West African dishes and which you've brought to America. There's some other notable must-haves in the West African pantry. The, I have to say that the condiment section of your book, Simply West African, is just incredibly enticing. So let's talk about some of those. What is kan kan kan? Kan 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 um, has different names. It's a spice blend, really, from the Aousa people. Aousa is a tribe, the most nomadic tribe that you see in different parts of West Africa. And that's a spice blend that has ginger, that has traditionally peanut flour and sometimes cumin, cayenne pepper. And all of that is blend together. Depending on the region, it evolves, but those are the basic basic ingredients. And it's used to marinate meat, usually a type of meat, a recipe called suya that you see in um, in Nigeria, or we call it Dibi Aousa in Senegal. 
it's just a, a grilled meat that's like uh, marinated with this kankanka and it's also used as a dipping dry dip the kankanka on the side and you have your grilled meat you can just dip it in it to have a little kick to into the into your your food experience so kankanka is that what about no cost Nokos is also another blend. This one is wet. Kankanka is dry, right? So Nokos is like this blend that we use in Senegal in particular in when you make sauces and you make stews. That's that secret uh, mixture that has garlic, that has parsley, that has green bell pepper, that has ginger, that has fresh whole peppercorn, all blended together into, usually you use a modern pestle and you pound it. This is the way, that's our traditional uh, food processor in, in West Africa, modern pestle, and all of those are pounded together with scallions. Sometimes you can add scotch bonnet pepper. So it evolves again, depending on every household has a different locust recipe. So that mixture that you blend, you can keep it in a jar and use it tablespoons at a time when you make a sauce in the beginning of the sauce when you start with your onions and garlic and, and oil you saute it and you can add your knuckles and halfway through cooking the sauce or the soup or the stews or any of those you just add another tablespoon of, of knuckles towards the end you know and it revives all those flavors it gives it that freshness a unique flavor of the sauce that you, you know, is particular to Senegalese uh, sauces and stews and soups So sauces are the not-so-secret secret to perfecting <laughs> West African cuisine. Um, describe the mother sauces to us. Well, the mother sauces, uh, they, they vary. You have, uh, in, in uh, West Africa, usually you have the red sauce. That the red sauce is oftentimes tomato-based. And, uh, and you see in particular cases with palm oil. You know, that's like if you choose to use, not to use palm oil, you can use any vegetable oil. It could be used as a base for the famous jollof rice, for instance, and even base for the gumbo as well. But you also have the sauce that are not based, you know, some, the most popular one is a peanut sauce. Spinach sauce is almost like the thickness of a mole. Some people even make that connection between mole and, and that peanut sauce. But you have a version of it called egusi, and uh, egusi is kind of like a pumpkin seed. So the seeds and the nut sauces are like the type of sauce of a mother sauce as well that can be turned into different recipes. Like another recipe that's not based is the, what we call sauce feuille or we call it contomere uh, in Nigeria, in, in Ghana, or you call it um, etoje in Kazamas. So those are leafy sauces as well, but you add that nut-based sauce, and that gives it that really thick, it's really not even a sauce, it's technically called a sauce there, but it's like a stew, a leafy stew that goes, you see a lot of those leafy stews in, in our cuisines, and that can be any type of leaf, from like sweet potato leaves, to cassava leaves, to um, black pea leaves. So any, any leaves really nothing goes to waste but in my book actually I even use all the leaves that are less uh, you find less of it in Africa but you find it in the US like kale that collard greens or all of those so those are also leaves that you can use and that's part of the, 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 the ver versions of the, the nut based sauces Pierre, here in California, the weather still feels like summer. And as we're recording this, the market still has some summer produce. Tell me what's inspiring you in these final warm days of the season. One ingredient that I lots of right now is the okra. There's lots of okra around here and they're like the young and tender ones. And I just love okra. I mean, this is like one dish I just made a couple of days ago. My in-laws were in town. So this dish was like this okra and seafood stew. We call it supukanja. 
and just use this young okra that I found in the market. And I just thinly slice them, lots of it, and I just add them at the end of the cooking stew, just so they just barely cook and they keep their beautiful green and crunchiness. And in the stew, I have all the fresh seafood that I can find, you know, it's like fresh mussels and, and scallops and, and shrimp. And, uh, and then, you know, any smoked fish, if I want, I can add to it. So it changes every day. So, you know, I give myself the flexibility of being part of the, the, the California market and find what I find and just integrate it to the cuisine. So that's the, the forgiving part of West African cuisine, very resilient and, and versatile and easy to, to adjust to the environment. Well, it's always, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much, Pierre. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Welcome. That was Senegalese chef Pierre Cham. His latest book is Simply West African. We've got a recipe for his seafood okra soup at kcrw.com slash good food. In a minute, local. The Watts restaurant that first launched in 2016 is coming back. We've got the details next. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. When Local opened its stores in Watts on Martin Luther King Jr. Day in 2016, the country took notice. Aimed to bring healthier fast food to an underserved community, chefs Daniel Patterson and Roy Choi faced challenges and critics. Despite Jonathan Gold naming Local the Los Angeles Times Restaurant of the Year in 2017, Two years later, all locations of local were closed. The concept had its silver lining, though. Daniel met Keith Corbin, a Watts native who worked his way up through the ranks of the restaurant. With local closed, the duo focused their energies on their new restaurant, Alta, in the West Adams neighborhood. But like a phoenix, local is back. Daniel and Keith are reopening in the original Watts location as a nonprofit restaurant and they join me to share what they have in store. Hello, gentlemen. Hi. Hello. I love the intro. That was awesome. Why, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Daniel, you've had a few years to reflect on what did and didn't work for the original local. What did you learn? I mean, a lot. Uh, I think, in general, anything that's new and it's complicated, it's going to be almost impossible to get right the first time. And because we had such a spotlight on us, I think um, the idea was that we were going to be perfect in every way, you know? And, And we really wanted that to be the case. But the biggest lesson was, I think we just bit off too much at once, you know? And I think the level of difficulty was extraordinary. But I have no regrets about trying. So coming back to it, you know, Keith and I have had five years to to think about it and and talk about it and 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 to to kind of dream what if. And so I, I think we can come back to it with a little bit more of a of a change perspective about how this could work within the context of the community and and as a nonprofit, which at the end of the day we probably should have done from the beginning because that was really our motivation was, you know, we wanted to prove that you could make money and do all of these things at the same time, but um, maybe you can. So, you know, we're going to try it a different way. 
Keith, you were raised in Watts. Why are you more hopeful about Locals Future as a nonprofit? And what will it mean for you to serve your community in this way? I believe in nonprofit works because it's not focused on profit-driven. Um, the money that we make goes back into the nonprofit to further finance our additional programs and outreach and things like that. When things are profit-driven, it's a different focus. You know, you have to worry about the bottom lines. You have to worry about the food costs. You have to worry about all these things to make a profit for the business to survive as a nonprofit. Yeah, you have to worry about those things, but they're not as a focus as for for for-profit. And coming back to the community in which I was raised and being able to provide opportunity and and just give a path that Daniel and Roy provided for me and that Daniel worked so closely with me over these last five years to get to where I'm at. I, I know there's not much opportunity in my community So to be able to go back and provide opportunity, some sort of opportunity, is awesome. Yeah, and and I think that, you know, when when you look at local, I think that was absolutely the biggest success, is every single person that came through local used it as a stepping stone to go somewhere. You know, one person might have started a, you know, gone into construction, another person might have uh, started a, a security company, another person might have gone on to be a sous chef or something in the, in the restaurant business. But, but the fact is, that was the most powerful aspect of local. And so when we were kind of thinking about it, like the job training, the vocational training aspect, it's something close to my heart. I think that any chef, like if you talk to any one who's achieved anything, they'll tell you the most important thing that they've done is, is to be able to share what they know with a staff that can then go on to start their own businesses and train their own people. What's beautiful about this to me is Keith going back to the community he grew up in to be able to share this experience. And I think a lot of people leave and they're like, that's it, I'm done. And you know, for Keith to be, say like, what I really want to do is go back and I want to share like this, this opportunity that I got to have with other people. I think that's really amazing. So when I go on the website of um, Local, the new website, I see that there are kind of like three pillars happening. And the first one is that it's you're opening a restaurant. Um, it may not be uh, a profit restaurant, but it's a restaurant that's going to be serving people. Are menu items going to be the same? Are they going to be different? And what's the pricing going to be like? So it's not going to be the same. We've been working on the space. So we have a chance to do, before we open like completely, uh, to do some pop-ups for the community, get some feedback. Probably the cooking will be more similar to the style we do at Alta except more in a fast, casual kind of vein. But I think from talking with Keith and, and from his connection to you know what people want in the community, we're going to try and give them food that they're more familiar with. It, it, the food should be good. It should be tasty um, and, and obviously healthy with good ingredients. But the, po- the point of this is, one, that people be happy who come there to eat, and then two, that it provides different kinds of opportunities to train on different things. So we might have some specials that have show different kinds of techniques because we're going to be also 
feeding the community in terms of working with local organizations that address food insecurity. So we might also have them do different kinds of styles of food and different kinds of techniques in, in the food that we're making for, for the community in that way. So it's a little bit of a different kind of focus. It's not just let's make a menu that's the menu we want to make, but it's also like how do we find that middle ground so the community is really happy, they come in, but then also the workers that are there, they're there to learn. So we want to make sure that they're not just flipping burgers all day, that they get other things that they get to learn. The third pillar I find really interesting, which is this idea of once people are employed and they're there and they're learning, um, there will be those who rise and will be ready to take on more responsibility and more challenges. And so what are you striving to develop that you could continue to help those who are ready to move on, but not completely? Using our connections in the industry that we in between Daniel and I, and, and do some job placement and place um, the students or workers in environments that's conducive with their growth. And then also we would love to have some type of like, you know, like a case manager, case management where you have someone who you can reach out to when you're dealing with different situations at that new job site to help you navigate. I found from my experience when I first got my job and started working, I didn't know how to communicate. I didn't know how to respect authority. I didn't know, like, whenever I had some disciplinary action, I felt picked on and this, that, and other. So I didn't know how to navigate the workforce. So having someone like I did. So a lot of this for me is to set up a way for people to have the very things that were provided for me in order for me to be successful in the workforce. So how are you raising money? to do this resurrection. I should start off by saying that I donated this morning. Oh my God, thank you awesome. so much. Thank you. We're getting individuals who are donating. We're also talking to more uh, institutional or, or corporate kinds of places that have a budget for that. And uh, we were kind of looking at, you know, where city grants can be helpful. Um, so kind of a wide range of possibilities. What's your timeline for opening, given that we all know that timelines for openings are a lie? <laughs> well, in, in our dream scenario, like, you know, soon. Love that. <laughs> Was I being too specific? I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> like, I don't want to overcommit. To, so, like, I, I would say October, November... December, you know, somewhere, hopefully by the end of the year. Well, I wish you all the best. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you. I've been talking with chefs Daniel Patterson and Keith Corbin. Together, they're reopening local in Watts. Weird is not the first word that comes to mind when I think of dining out in Pasadena, but Bar Chalu is actively trying to change that. James Beard award-winning LA Times restaurant critic Bill Addison has details on the strange and delicious offerings coming out of the kitchen. Hi, Bill. Hi, Evan. 
So tell us about this self-described weird place. Yes, it is next to the Pasadena Playhouse, um, a restaurant that opened at the beginning of the year. And the chef, Doug Rankin, has uh, a great reputation for kind of making food that both harkens to kind of bistro comfort cooking, but also adds in a lot of elements that you don't necessarily think would work, but really do. He's kind of a risk taker on the plate. Where else in LA have um, the chefs behind the menu cooked? Yeah, um, Rankin and also his pastry chef, Raymond Morales, were at Bar Restaurant in Silver Lake, uh, a restaurant that I reviewed uh, right before the March 2020 shutdowns. It was pretty new and just one of those unfortunate closures of that time that that didn't really have the the time to connect with their audience and find ways to survive. So how is Chelou translated from the French and, and how is that interpreted on the menu? Yeah, it's a great word that I never learned in my French classes. It can mean uh, weird, strange, unexpected, shady, dodgy. You know, you, you get the picture. It's, it's kind of a declaration of, of roguish in intent. And that is Rankin, right? He has a knack for these offbeat abstractions on the plate, but, but that I think can be kind of good business in Los Angeles. It's a, it's a tough time with rents. And I, I wonder sometimes if, if a lot of menus are just playing it safe to appeal to the most common denominator audience. And, and this is a great example of how if you think outside the box a little bit, people will show up. What are the must-tries on the menu? So he is great with vegetables, which is pretty wonderful, though not all of them are, you know, what what I would call plant-based. Um, for example, there are snap peas, and he kind of blankets them with anchovy cream and then showers them with grated cured egg yolk and um, crumbled chistora, which is like a thin Basque sausage. So it's a, it's a great example of kind of the uncanny delicious, almost something about almost tasted like Vitello Tonato to me, but with you know, snap peas in there somewhere. He also has a, a rainbow trout entree that I love. He makes this Spanish dish pil pil, which is uh, made from salt, cod, garlic, and olive oil. And he kind of thins it to the consistency of tahini and he um, runs it together on the plate with garlic, chive oil, and kind of that like um, sort of like the very nouvelle cuisine kind of way where there are patterns running through the sauces. And then he, the fish is beautifully cooked and he puts it over um, a rice pilaf that he simmered and corn juice. And he does that so that he puts it in the pan on the stove, the rice, right before cooking. And the the corn juices caramelize. So it's almost like the crispness that you always want at the bottom of a paella pan and don't always get. Um, and it's there. It all, it all comes through really magnificently. It's wow. very smart cooking. Yeah. Th- that sounds so good. 
The restaurant shares space in the 98-year-old Spanish Revival building that houses the Pasadena Playhouse. So that must add another level to the experience. Yeah, it's lovely, both because it's just a simple, dim, appealing room, great for solo dining at the bar, but it's also fun. I have had a couple experiences where I'm leaving the restaurant right when the playhouse is letting out. And you know that kind of like rush of emotion you feel right when you leave a play and you're you're kind of buzzy from what you just watched. I, I like it because I feel similarly, honestly, when I eat at this restaurant. And so it's like I'm I'm walking out and I'm like, yeah, I just had it. I just had a theatrical experience too. Well, thank you so much, Bill. Thank you, Evan. That was LA Times restaurant critic Bill Addison discussing Bar Chalu in Pasadena. Want to read more about it? Visit our website for a link to Bill's review. KCRW.com slash good food. It's apple season and the market report is up next. Stay close. I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. Let's head now to the Santa Monica Farmer's Market, where Jillian Ferguson joins us with her weekly report. This is Jillian Ferguson with the Market Report. Apple season means pie season, and no one knows pie like Nicole Rucker. Nicole is the baker and owner of Fat and Flour in the Grand Central Market, and she's here today to talk about a unique collaboration with the edible company Rose Los Angeles. Rose is known for their seasonal ingredient-driven approach and for their collaborations with chefs like Nicole. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm great. So this is the second collaboration you've done with Rose. Tell us about this most recent flavor, what it is and what inspired you. Yes. So this is my second Rose. Uh, I believe they call them delights because they're sort of loosely based on Turkish delights. Um, So they're not like a gelatin based edible, like a gummy. And this most recent round is based on an unexpected flavor combination that I stumbled upon while trying to come up with a late summer version of an apple pie because I wasn't quite ready to commit to cinnamon and spice when apples started getting good late August, early September. And I thought, like, what could I combine them with that is um, something that would complement the flavor of these delicious tart summer apples. And I went outside in my backyard and I grabbed some leaves off my fig tree because I don't ever really get any figs from my fig tree because the animals get them. And so I'm now kind of delving into how I can use it in other ways. And the fig leaf is, you've seen it uh, recently in desserts coming up a lot. Um, It's a beautiful green tea, coconutty flavor. You have to cook it first to really coax out the aroma. So if you pass by a fig tree, you might not smell the, the aroma that people are talking about unless you take a leaf off and put it in your toaster oven at home. So I combined the fig leaves from my tree with some vanilla bean, which is also kind of like a flavor that's in the fig leaf profile. Some people say pandan because it has that green flavor, but it's got vanilla-ish notes and it's got some roasted green tea flavors and it definitely has a coconutty vibe to it. I combined that with some really tart first of the season mutsu apples, a little bit of sea salt and regular granulated sugar as opposed to brown sugar, which is what I use further into the fall. And what came out was just like a very bright herbaceous 
like comforting version of an apple pie that was just like really not a fall flavor. Mm. And I combined these things together and took a taste. And in that moment, I, I texted one of the founders of Rose and I said, hey buddy, can we make another flavor? Because I just found a good combo. And the next day he went to Byrate Market in San Francisco and he saw the Mutsu apples, which is what I was telling him about. And he said, okay, game on, let's do it. And they slapped this thing together so quickly just so we wouldn't miss the Mutsu season and the fig um, leaf season. And now we have this delicious edible that is, it's a wonderful flavor combination. It's also a very good chill, low dose of THC one-to-one with CBD. Amazing. So you mentioned the Mutsu apple. Every time the Mutsus come into season, I think of you because mm-hmm. it's long been your favorite. It is my favorite. What about this apple is so great for pies and baking? The Mutsu, once people taste it, especially once, it, once it's baked, they recognize that it is the flavor of a pie apple. Like it has the tartness and the juiciness. And you can add the cinnamon and all the spices with it that makes it taste more like a traditional American pie. But I think it's a better, juicier, less tannic version of what most people think is the pie apple, which is Granny Smith. What's the process once you have the flavor profile of getting it into the Rose Delight? Okay, so their process is actually kind of remarkable. They're one of the only places that are um, cold pressing this cannabis. They also have their own farm. And they have this beautiful cold pressed, you know, extraction of cannabis that they then blend with farmer's market produce um, to create like a flavor profile. And then they put it in a mold and pop it out. And then after they pop out the edibles, they have to cure them for a little bit because they're like a little candy situation, but they toss them in a dust. And that's where the fig leaf really comes in in our candy is that we toasted the fig leaves and then they also processed the fig leaves in a different way and they blended that with powdered sugar and made this green powder that they put on the outside of it. So you get this really tart apple edible and then it has this herbaceous, coconutty, aromatic dust on the outside of it and that's how the magic is made. Well, this is the most California market report we've ever done, Nicole. Thank you so much. You're welcome. That was Nicole Rucker. She is behind Fat and Flour at the Grand Central Market. And Nicole is about to open a brand new branch of Fat and Flour on Washington Boulevard in Culver City. You can find her collaboration with Rose on their website. Just go to roselosangeles.com. Mike Cerrone is one of the farmers who brings Mutsu apples to the market this time of year. He brings at least 20 varieties down each week from his farm in Seat Canyon near San Luis Obispo. Hi, Mike. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. So whenever we talk, we always talk about water because you're a dry farmer, meaning that you do not irrigate your trees. And during the drought, that always seemed like a miracle, but then we got so much rain this past year. So how did that impact your crop? Uh, It impacted it very well. Uh, Super positive. You really know, and we knew that we were in a drought after we saw how our trees came out of this. They just really have been growing phenomenally. We had been missing water, and we were kind of getting used to it, you know? And uh, we were, our fruit was a lot smaller previous years, but this year things are looking up. We've had a really, really big crop. And how does it impact the flavor? Well, the flavor's good because the rain kind of cut off in April and the grounds dried out and I think the flavor's good and they're juicy. So 
Yeah, the dry farming is good for a lot of things, but flavor-wise, it, it really helps. Yeah, definitely. So you always have at least 20, I think, varieties here on the table. Mm-hmm. I know it's hard to pick a favorite, but is there one that you just absolutely love to grow? Well, yeah, I hate to say it because everybody's <laughs> going to want it. Um, Gold Rush. It's kind of the last variety of the year. We haven't even picked it yet. But they're super good. I mean, you know Gold Rush. They're hard and crunchy and they're small and goldeny, and they don't look quite right. But once you bite into them, that's all you want. Um, but I have a couple others that are kind of my favorites. Like, And they, they're happen, they happen to be ripening right now. One is called Suncrisp. And the other one is Criterion, and actually, the, all three of those are goldenish apples, but they're not golden delicious. And they all are kind of denser yellow apples that have a, a tart quality, but they're not sour. There's just like a deeper, richer flavor to them. Well, thank you so much, Mike. You're welcome. That was Mike Cerrone of Sea Canyon. He comes down every Wednesday with apples, and right now he also has quince and pear, too. For The Market Report, I'm Jillian Ferguson. If you missed any of today's show, listen at kcrw.com slash goodfood or on KCRW's mobile app. You can also subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Laryl Garcia, and Elena Shatkin, and to our engineers, Desmond Taylor, Nick Lamponi, and Hope Rush. And a special thanks to Laura Kondarajan and Gary Masiha. I'm Evan Kleiman. With those gorgeous apples in the market, you really have to make some pie. You know, you can eat it for breakfast. I'll be back next week with an all new episode of Good Food.